Well, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. The very last chapter of the book of Revelation and the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. We'll begin this chapter this week and we'll finish the chapter next week and then we'll have one more week in this series where we will kind of tie up the whole series and complete it. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing John's vision of the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem. And today that continues. We see kind of the conclusion of this vision of the new Jerusalem. And what we're going to see this morning, the first five verses of chapter 22, I'm calling the new Eden. Because this part of John's vision is phrased in terms and symbols that should call to our mind the Garden of Eden. And that'll help us to understand John's point in this text this morning. So let's read Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Follow along as I read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, last week as we finished chapter 21, we were talking about the New Jerusalem which is the bride of Christ. It's the church. And John presents the church in ideal form in that vision. It's a description that is becoming a reality in time. It's growing throughout time. And last week we saw eight features of the new Jerusalem that helped us to understand that vision of the church. Our passage today is really a continuation of this description of the new Jerusalem. But in these first five verses of chapter 22, it's as if John is showing us from a slightly different angle. And the angle that he's showing in these verses is that the new Jerusalem is also a new Eden. A new Eden. You won't find that name in the text. When you see where John's getting his imagery from, you'll recognize the picture that he's painting. It's paradise restored. The things that were present in the original creation but were lost because of the sin of Adam and Eve are now restored in the New Jerusalem, in this New Eden. So last week we saw eight features of the New Jerusalem and this week I want to show you five features of the New Eden. And for each of them, you'll be able to trace this feature from the Garden of Eden to being lost because of sin to being restored through Christ in the new covenant. But before we do that, I want to give you some other background from the Old Testament that'll be helpful. When we think about this imagery that we're seeing here in Revelation 22, there's two main passages in the Old Testament that we could turn to. One is Zechariah 14. I won't have you turn there this morning, but that passage has the context of judgment against Jerusalem. And it talks about this river and about the curse being removed. So it's very fitting. It's a very fitting background. Those are themes that are really important to John here in Revelation 22. 
But for the sake of time, I'm just going to encourage you to look at that passage on your own, Zechariah 14. The other passage in the background here is from the book of Ezekiel, and it's Ezekiel's vision of the end-time temple. And you find it in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And so I'm going to have you turn there. Turn to Ezekiel 40 with me. This is absolutely essential to John's description in Revelation 21 and 22. So we're going to take a little time this morning to look at Ezekiel's vision. And if you're looking for Ezekiel, it's a bigger book. It's one of the major prophets. If you just open your Bible to the middle, you'll find Psalms is usually right around the middle. And then you head towards the back. You get Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of those larger prophets. And Ezekiel is right in there with them. So we're going to take a little time this morning to look at Ezekiel's vision because it's going to help us understand what John is saying in Revelation 22. Okay, then we'll look at those five features of the new Eden. All right. So we're going to start in Ezekiel 40. Ezekiel, um, the first half of the book, announces the judgment of exile because of Israel's sin. So Israel has sinned, and that means they're being yanked out of the land. Okay, they're being exiled out of the land because of their sin. The second half of the book, though, is a message of hope that they will be restored. And so the vision that we're going to look at is in that second half, and it stretches over nine chapters, chapters 40 to 48, and it's a vision of the temple. We're just going to drop in on a couple of spots here to catch the key points. Okay? And I want, I want to read this for you. I want you to see it in front of you. If you keep Revelation 22 in your mind, what we already read, you'll see how this is clearly in John's mind as he pens those first five verses of Revelation 22. All right, Ezekiel 40, let's look at the first five verses. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. Okay, so here, I'm going to stop there. We have a vision of a new temple. Just like John describes in Revelation 21 and 22. So a lot of what we just read, you heard last week in Revelation 21. The angel's measuring the temple, and he's giving the measurements to Ezekiel, just like the measurements in Revelation 21 that are given to John. And this vision takes place on a great high mountain, just like John's vision of the New Jerusalem does. And the temple is a structure like a city, just like John's vision is the New Jerusalem city, and it's a temple, it's the dwelling place of God. So jump, out, jump over with me now to chapter 43 of Ezekiel. Chapter 43, we'll look at the first seven verses here. Chapter 43, verses 1 to 7. Then he led me to the gate, gate facing east, and behold, the glory of Israel was coming from the east, 
And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. So this new temple city that Ezekiel sees in this vision has the glory of God fill it, and that glory shines out over the whole earth, and God says that this will be his throne and he will dwell there with his people forever. This should be sounding a lot like Revelation 21 and 22 so far. Now jump over to chapter 47. Ezekiel 47. And here we're going to look at the first 12 verses. Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold... Water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, Remember, a cubit is about 18 inches, so that's 1,500 feet or so. And then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes... Every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Eneglim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt." And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Okay, so to recap, here we have the river that is flowing out of the temple. That's where John gets his image of the river in the middle of the city temple. And look what happens with this river. 
It begins very small, it's trickling, and it grows slowly. After a thousand cubits, it's ankle deep. After another thousand, it's knee deep. And eventually, before you know it, it's overwhelmingly large and it affects the whole earth. This is describing the kingdom of Christ. This is the gospel, the good news, going out throughout the earth and over time, eventually, bearing great fruit. What's the effect of this river as it goes throughout the earth? Well, verse 8, when the water of the river enters the sea, the water of the sea becomes fresh water. Remember, the sea represents the Gentile nations, and as the gospel enters those nations, those nations are blessed by it. They become like fresh water. When the river reaches those seas, the fish and the creatures in those seas will live and flourish and multiply. And there will be many kinds of fish because there are many nations that become gospelized. And there are fishermen casting their nets and bringing in these fish. Why is that part of the vision? If you remember last week, when we saw the vision of the New Jerusalem, the city, we noted that it had gates made of pearls. And we looked at Matthew 13, verse 46, which compared the kingdom of heaven to a pearl of great price. And John was using that image to describe the gates of the New Jerusalem. Well, the very next verse in Matthew 13 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. It's just continuing with this description of the kingdom. And Jesus told the disciples that he was going to make them what? Fishers of men. This vision of the river making the waters of the seas fresh and the fish being given life and flourishing and the fishermen gathering fish of every kind. This is all part of the picture of the kingdom of Christ growing, of the gospel going throughout the earth. And that's a description of this present age. Now note this, Ezekiel's vision also says, that there will be swamps and marshes that do not become fresh. Those are the pockets of resistance that remain even as the kingdom grows. Remember, at the very end, we were told in Revelation 20 that Satan is allowed to deceive the nations one last time. Who will, who's he going to deceive? These holdouts, these pockets of resistance, the swamps and marshes. So the gospel covers the whole earth and the whole earth is characterized by obedience to Christ and the nations honor him, but that doesn't mean that every person without exception becomes a Christian. One more detail to note while you're looking at Ezekiel 47, there are many trees on each side of the river and these trees are for food and their leaves never wither and they produce fruit year round, fresh fruit every month. Why? Because the water that nourishes them comes from the temple. The river that flows out from the temple is the source of the nourishment that brings fruit. And their leaves will be for healing. So hopefully, it's really, really clear by now that this passage is the background for John's vision. 
what we read in Revelation 22. Now, one last thing to note from the book of Ezekiel. If you go to the next chapter, uh, the very last chapter of Ezekiel, and the very last verse, and the last half of the verse. So Ezekiel 48, 35, and the last half of the verse. Here's what it says. The name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Just like John describes in Revelation, this temple city will be a dwelling place for God. It's where he's going to dwell with his people from that time on forever and ever. So this vision of Ezekiel, this end time city temple, is describing the same thing that John describes. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the bride of the lamb. It's the church. It's this present age. And it's growing to become more and more of a reality until in time it fills the whole earth. The power of the gospel flowing out, the kingdom of Christ growing. All right. Now back to Revelation 22 with me. That's the Old Testament background we needed to understand. Now let's look at those five features of the new Eden in Revelation 22. And the first one is this. It's the river of the water of life. John tells us that there's a river of the water of life flowing out from the throne of God and the Lamb through the city. Now again, you've got to ask the question, where is he getting his imagery? Well, we know he's getting it from Ezekiel, but it's more than that as well. And by now, you should know the answer to that question when we ask, where does John get his imagery? He gets it from the Old Testament. And this begins with the Garden of Eden. If you recall the story of creation and the description of the Garden of Eden, you might remember this. Genesis 2 verse 10 says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Okay, now we've talked about this in the past once or twice, but just a quick reminder, if you pay attention to the text, Eden is God's dwelling place and the garden is just outside Eden. It's like a palace and the palace gardens. It's the king's residence and the well-tended royal gardens right outside it. And I'll show you just one passage that'll help us, again, maybe just tweak our picture of Eden a little bit. And this is admittedly a tricky passage. It's from, it's again, from the book of Ezekiel. This part is addressed to the king of the city of Tyre. Some think that it's ultimately talking about Lucifer that became Satan. Some think it's talking about Adam. I'm not going to answer that question this morning. I just want you to hear what it says about Eden. Okay. So this is Ezekiel uh, 28 starting in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So there's a description of Eden here. Every precious stone was your covering, Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Okay, so take note of that. Eden is on a mountain, according to scripture. 
In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. All right. So regardless of who this is speaking of, we do see that Eden was on a mountain. It's a garden. It's on a mountain. And from Genesis, we see that a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. So the river flows down the mountain from Eden into the garden and beyond. Just like the river in Ezekiel's vision flows from the temple city out into the rest of the world. And just like the river in John's vision in Revelation 22 flows out from the throne of God, God's dwelling and the land, into the rest of the city, which encompasses the whole people of God, the church. And there are so many other passages that we could look at here, too. I'll just give you a few things to think about. Joel 3 says that when God restores Jerusalem, in other words, what John is calling New Jerusalem, in the day when God again comes to dwell in Zion, his holy mountain, and Jerusalem is made holy, and no one who doesn't belong ever enters it again. When that happens, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. So there it is again, this imagery of the river that flows out from the throne from the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. Or Psalm 36, which says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So God's house, or the temple, with the river of his delight, a fountain of life. Or we could go to Psalm 46. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So the city where God dwells, which has a river that brings gladness. This theme is all throughout the Old Testament. And then when you get to the New Testament, you have Jesus saying things like this. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's John 4. Or a few chapters later, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so this is a really important passage, and this is helpful in understanding what John's doing in Revelation. So when it says, out of his heart, that's talking about Jesus' heart. Okay? Out of Jesus' heart flow rivers of living water. From the throne of the Lamb... John says in Revelation, flows a river of living water. And what is that river? John explains it here. It's the Holy Spirit. Think about it. When does this happen? 
in the story of Scripture. When does this happen? John says here that the Spirit had not been given, this is when Jesus is on earth, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, he was glorified. He ascends to the Father, he takes his place on the throne, then what does he do? He pours out the Holy Spirit on his people, the church, at Pentecost. And the Spirit filled the church there in Jerusalem. And what happened next? The gospel, by the power of the Spirit, went out from Jerusalem, from the church. It started as a trickle, and then it got deeper and deeper, and it grew and it grew. There's 120 disciples, then suddenly there's 3,000, and then by the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has gone throughout the entire Roman Empire. And it's still growing today, filling the earth. Can you see the picture? Can you see what John is doing here? Everywhere that river goes, everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere the spirit goes, he brings life. And the seas are turned to fresh water. And people of every kind are caught up in the fishing net of the kingdom of heaven. And Christ's kingdom grows and it encompasses all kinds of people. And it will continue to do that until the whole earth is full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the river of the water of life that John is describing in Revelation 22. The second feature that we want to take note of in the New Eden is the tree of life. If we were to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis again, the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, is in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had access to this tree as long as they were in the garden. But when they sinned and God kicked them out of the garden, they no longer had access to the tree of life. When Ezekiel picks up this idea, he describes it as many trees that bear fruit and life and healing. And that's the case in Revelation 22 as well. The word here that John uses is the word that just means wood. It describes the woods or a forest. It's actually also the same word that is often used to describe the cross on which Jesus died. So, the tree on which Jesus was crucified is the tree that brings us life. And here in John's vision are the tree or the woods of life, many trees growing on either side of the river of the water of life. In other words, <clears throat> the blessing of life in Eden that Adam lost through sin has now been restored many times over. It's many trees all along here. What is gained in Christ is greater than what was lost in Adam. Here's how Paul says it. He says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And these trees bear fruit all year round, 12 kinds of fruit. 
a never-ending supply of life and nourishment for the people of God, just like the trees in Ezekiel's vision. Now, Ezekiel said that the, the leaves of the tree were for healing. John says the same thing, but he gets more specific. He says it's for the healing of the nations. This fits perfectly with what we've already seen. The river flows out from the throne and changes the seas of the world to become fresh water, bringing life to all different kinds of fish. In other words, the gospel message that brings life flows out from Jesus the Lamb in the power of the Spirit to bring life to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And as we saw last week, the result is that we have kings whose names are written in the book of life that bring their glory and honor of the nations into the city temple to honor the Lamb. And again, that's what the future of this world holds over time by the power of the spirit the gospel will transform the world so that the nations are discipled just like jesus commanded before he ascended into heaven and those nations will walk by the light of his word like we saw last week and the kingdom of christ will fill the earth the third feature of the new eden I want you to see is that there is no more curse. No more curse. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, God cursed the serpent and the man and the woman, their work, and we've been battling the curse ever since. When Ezekiel gives his vision, he speaks of this as being life and healing, this rolling back of the curse. The river brings life because there's death out there. And that death is the curse of sin. The leaves of the tree bring healing because of the sickness and disease of sin. The curse. John says, there will no longer be anything accursed in the city. The city temple will be perfectly protected by the second Adam, Jesus. The first Adam let Satan in and gave in to the temptation. The second Adam, Jesus, will perfectly protect this city temple. And the curse will be reversed, rolled back. The way Isaiah prophesied about it is that when the suffering servant Messiah came, then we would be healed by his wounds. By his wounds, we are healed. It's his wounds born on the cross, on that tree of life, that bring healing to us the nations. When Peter preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 3, he refers to it as the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's a time of restoration. When he wrote his first letter, Peter said it this way. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness By his wounds, you have been healed. It's the healing of the nations that is brought. It's the reverse of the curse. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote the song, Joy to the World, to express what happens when Jesus reigns as king. And the whole song is fantastic. We're going to get a little bit later this morning. But Watts says it this way. This is verse 3. 
No more let sins and sorrows grow. Thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. And how far will they go? As far as the curse is found. No more curse. No more curse. The fourth feature for us to note in John's description of the new Eden is that we are restored to God's presence. John says that God's people will see his face. In the Garden of Eden, God walked in the garden. He spoke directly with Adam and Eve, but then they were exiled out of the garden because of their sin. Now, over the last several weeks, we've seen that promise that gets repeated all throughout the Old Testament, and it gets it gets fulfilled in what we see in Revelation. It's the promise that God would one day make his dwelling place again be with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And now John says that is being fulfilled. They will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. In the Old Testament, the high priest had a a, a nameplate on his turban and it said, holy to the Lord, God's name his forehead. Throughout Revelation, we've seen the mark of the beast and the mark of the lamb. Those who are loyal to Jesus are described as having God's name on them. It's telling us that they belong to God. He is their God. They are his people. You might remember back in chapter 14, we saw this. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These are the ones who belong to the Lamb. They have his name. And it's 144,000 because 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 1,000 is just a, a number that is expressing it's a really big amount. And the two twelves point us to the twelve tribes in the Old Testament and the twelve apostles in the New Testament. It's the full number of the people of God, like we saw last week. And it's the work of Christ that makes this a reality. It's Jesus' death on the cross, his redemption. Because the 144,000 in chapter 14 are singing a song that only the redeemed can learn. They've been redeemed, and that work of redemption by Christ has brought them to have his name. They belong to him. And so all those who are redeemed are restored to God's presence. Well, the fifth and final feature of the new Eden we need to see this morning is that the saints reign forever and ever. So their reign is not just for the millennium, the reign of Christ during this era, but for eternity. In other words, the millennium's only the beginning. Adam was supposed to rule and reign in the Garden of Eden, but he failed to rule well. Instead, he sinned against God. And we learn all through Scripture that one day a true king would come who would rule well, and that king is Jesus. And his people will rule and reign with him. In Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel indicates the everlasting nature of this rule when he says that the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. From that time on, in other words, forever and ever. It's the eternal life that Jesus talked about. 
For example, in Matthew 25, he's talking about that final judgment that comes someday. And he says this, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 7, says it this way, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the saints rule and reign with Christ in his eternal kingdom. Now we've seen what that means that we're already ruling and reigning and how that reign will be increased over time. Stretching, here you see that it stretches into eternity. So it happens now, it grows in time, it stretches into eternity. Think about what we've seen in this vision in Revelation 22. The river of the water of life flows out from God and from the Lamb and that's the gospel bringing life by the power of the Spirit of God spreading over the whole earth. The tree of life nourishes the people of God by the redemption that Christ achieved on the tree and it heals the nations. The curse of sin is rolled back and undone. God's people are restored to his presence to live with him and they will rule and reign with him forever and ever. So what is it that John's communicating in this vision? What's the main point? Well, here it is. In Christ, paradise is restored. In Christ, paradise is restored. And in a sense, this is the culmination of the whole storyline of the Bible. All that went wrong in the Garden of Eden is undone and overcome by Christ. And John paints the picture of the effects of Jesus' work of redemption as being life and healing that spread throughout the earth as the gospel spreads and the kingdom of Christ grows over time. <clears throat> there are a lot of competing visions of what's wrong with our world and how it should be fixed. What should the world look like? Some think that achieving social justice is what we need. So everyone needs to be on equal footing. We penalize those who have more and society provides for those who have less. Jobs, for instance, shouldn't be dependent on skill or ability or work ethic, but rather based on need. The more of a victim you are, the more society should listen to you and serve you. That's one vision. Others think that globalization will solve everything. One great unified world government, everyone getting along, everyone having the same goals and the same leaders. Others think that radical individualism is the answer. Anarchy. No one in charge. Everyone doing what they want. Others want equality for everyone by breaking down all the distinctions. So no more male and female, no more ethnic distinctions, no more class distinctions. Everyone is just the same. One of the most popular and dangerous ideas today is that of fascism. 
rule by the elites. So the political leaders and the industry leaders together know what's best for humanity. They will lead us. They will tell us what to do. And everyone will be coerced into cooperating with that vision. But see, the message of the Bible is that only in Christ is paradise restored. Jesus is the only solution to man's sin problem. Jesus is the only rightful king of the world. And the choice to be made is, will you be part of his bride, the church, submitting to his lordship and honoring him as your head? Or will you remain apart from him, rebelling against this king? For all of those who long for sin to be gone, for suffering to end, for the effects of the curse to no longer be your daily reality, this passage is great news. This passage is a message of hope. It's what Jesus is doing in the world. This is where the world is going. Sure, there's lots of opposition along the way. Yes, it's going to take a very long time. But God is patient, wanting men to come to repentance and faith. And so we join him in that project. We work toward this vision of the new Eden. We take steps toward it in our work and in our families and in our church and in our communities. And may God grant us the faith to believe his promises and the hope to live confidently in those promises and the love toward him and others that will motivate us to live with this vision in mind.